You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our first author is a very uh, hot young guy who has was been in the field for a while writing short stories, but kind of <laughs> burst things open with uh, what I think is a very high concept series about uh, where basically people have to uh, live above 10,000 feet because the nano nanotechnology or nanobiology has uh, has sort of messed up the lower elevations. Uh, he also uh, writes uh, a lot of stuff for, for kids' magazines and kids' stuff, like how to make a, an unbeatable pinata and what to do when your kid wants to get out of the car seat and stuff like that. But we'll talk about, and he, right now he's working on, um, well, I don't, we'll ask him later what he's working on. Um, without further ado, let me introduce Jeff Carlson. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, I like to uh, keep people guessing, so I write, like, how-to parenting articles about, you know, sweet family life, and then I write end-of-the-world novels, so. Mm. That way you never know what you're going to get. Um, shall I just leap on in? Leap on in. Leap on in. I came prepared today to read either an excerpt of Plague Zone, which is the third book to cap the trilogy, or the opening of Plague Year, which is the first book in the trilogy, just in case all of you for shame haven't read the books. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to read, I didn't want to read from the beginning of the third book in the trilogy and, you know, ruin it all for everybody. Show of hands. Um, how about uh, Plague Year, the first book? First book in the trilogy? See, there you go. All right. See, I, I was thinking, right? Why don't I, why don't I read from the first book in the trilogy just to kind of get you all hooked and started? I mean, if I read from the third book, you're going to know who's still alive at that point, right? And who married who and who blew up where and all that kind of stuff. Um, no, I'm interested in seeing how an author sets out on such a high concept voyage as this one. So go into it. All right. Chapter one. They ate Jorgensen first. Right? And I gotta back up and do that again because it's just so good. Now the operative the operative word in that sentence is not eight. The operative word in that sentence, of course, is first. So that's how this all the whole series opens. They ate Jorgensen first. He'd twisted his leg bad, his long white leg. The man hadn't been much more than a stranger, but Cam remembered 500 things about him. It was a weakness. Cam remembered someone who'd never cursed, who kept his credit cards and driver's license for some reason. He remembered a hard worker who exhausted himself the day that he fell. Later, there were others Cam had actually talked with, where they were from, what kind of jobs they'd had. Talking made the days easier, except that ghosts seemed very real after you'd sucked the marrow out of someone's finger bones, and Cam got extra portions because he volunteered for wood detail even when the snow drifted up over the roof. Each night stretched longer than his memory. Aaron refused to have sex more than it took to get warm, and then there was nothing to do but pick at his blister rash and listen to the nightmares and slow whispers that filled the hut. He was glad when Manny banged on the wall and yelled, Aaron shifted but didn't wake. She could stay down for 12, 13 hours at a stretch. Others pushed up on one elbow or raised their heads, mumbling, groaning, screaming when Manny pushed through the door and let in a river of cold air. Fresh air. It washed Cam's ghosts away. 
The kid was short for 15, barely 5'3", but still had to duck the ceiling. They were lucky they hadn't scavenged enough material for anything better. They probably would have built high out of habit. This low space was quick to heat, and they planned to drop the roof another 12 inches before winter rolled around again, use the extra boards for insulation. Manny said, there's someone in the valley. What? Price wants to light a bonfire. What are you talking about? Someone's in the valley, coming toward us. Cam reached over Aaron to shake Sawyer, but Sawyer was already awake. His arm tensed under Cam's palm. The fire, down to coals, threw just enough light into their corner that the profile of Sawyer's newly shaved scalp looked like a bullet. In the valley, Sawyer repeated. That's impossible. Manny shook his head. We can see a flashlight. The high California Sierra, east of whatever remained of Sacramento, consisted of surprisingly straight lines. Ravines and drainages formed slashing V-shapes. Every mountaintop grew to a pyramid or slumped away as flat as a parking lot. Painted by the sweet glow of the stars, the sight gave Cam hope that it was beautiful, that he could still recognize beauty. Even better, it must be April or even May and would finally get warm enough that he could escape the stinking huts and sleep outside. The toes Manny had lost didn't prevent the kid from setting a quick pace, weaving around the fields of snow they hadn't yet carried to their crude reservoir. Cam and Sawyer kept close on his heels. This peak was no bigger than the back of God's hand, and they knew every barren inch of it, hunting day and night for the few rodents and birds that lived along the tree line, scouring it clean of plant life. Jim Price had everyone from the other cabin hauling firewood to a low ridge. Price himself had stayed by the woodpile, pointing, hollering, marching alongside one man briefly before hustling back to help another guy load up. Here you go, let's go! Unfortunately, some of these people needed cheerleading. In Cam's opinion, at least half of Price's supporters were fractured, beaten souls who had latched onto the only available father figure. At 46, Price was 12 years older than anyone else on the mountain. Sawyer plunged into the busy line, leading with his stubble dark head. Talking louder than Price, he grabbed at people's sleeves and blocked their way as Cam strode out to where they were making three piles. Big piles. Manny followed, pointing with his entire arm. And the kid's voice was unmistakably eager. Down there, he said. Cam stared out across the valley instead. The people on the next peak had, be had built three bonfires, just flickering orange sparks from here, but an obvious signal. See him, Manny asked, and then yelled, Hey! Some of the human shadows around them also cheered. There was little chance this sound would penetrate the vast black valley, but a sense of hope and wonder welled up in Cam again. About a mile below them, a wand of light strobed wildly over the rough terrain, electric light like a star. Cam said he must have started across this morning. You think someone could make it that far in a day? Longer than that would kill him. Price bustled over with a tin soup bowl of embers, hugging against his chest with one hand and waving his other arm grandly at each of the few stragglers he passed. Jim Price had a compact, barrel-shaped torso that in daylight sometimes gave him the illusion of plumpness. In the dim shine of the embers, his face was all hollows and cheekbone. Across his chin, a prominent hourglass pattern disrupted his beard, scarring from the last time he'd gone below 10,000 feet with a scavenging party. His grin was unbelievable, even frightening, but Cam must not have looked any better because Price lowered his eyes when Cam stepped in front of him. Cameron Lewis Naharo had been below the barrier four times as often, and his brown skin was mottled with burn blisters, his eyebrow and left nostril, both hands, both feet. He kept his coarse black hair at shoulder length to cover a badly disfigured ear. 
one fire, Cam said. One fire's plenty and make it smaller. Where the hell are we going to get more wood? He must have a way to protect us. Don't be stupid. If he did, he'd camp for the night instead of risking a broken leg. Remember what Colorado said. That was five months ago. Sawyer moved closer, both arms tight by his sides, his chin tucked down into his chest. We can't afford the wood, he said. Price didn't even look at him. He had never understood Sawyer's body language, so much more subtle than his own. Facing Cam, Price made a wagging, dismissive gesture and said, You tell your little bed buddy Sawyer decked him. One jab sideways across that big mouth. Price fell in a heap and fumbled his soup bowl, throwing orange meteors over his head. He scrabbled and kicked in the dirt as Sawyer paced forward, stiff, deliberate. Then Lorraine lurched in between them, keening deep in her throat, spreading her arms wide in a very Price-like gesture. One fire, Cam said, please. A few of them went back into their cabin. Everyone else pressed tight around the bonfire, roasting themselves, blocking the light. Across the valley, the other fires were put out. They don't have forests to burn either, Sawyer announced with mean satisfaction, but Cam felt a spike of disappointment, misplaced fear. It was as if the dark of the valley lunged up like a wave and smothered those people. After the last of their batteries had died, after they lost the calm, redundant 24-hour military broadcasts out of Colorado and the underground shelters near Los Angeles, there had been two suicides, almost 10% of their population, both women, of which there were now only six. Cam had no idea how many people still survived across the valley, how bad winter had hit them, nothing except that they were there. Cam's group had never possessed binoculars or a real radio, just a glossy red CD boombox. He'd tried faking Morse code with a pocket mirror and reflected sunlight, thinking they could teach each other, but even if communication had been possible, there was nothing the other survivors could do for them except say hello, nothing except keep them sane. Isolation cinched tighter around their hearts every hour, and they had become as much of a threat to themselves as was their environment, contorted by despair, strain, and mistrust, ferocious hunger and guilt. Maybe they were all poisoned by the same thought. Sawyer said, I wonder what they've been eating. Of the few known facts, it was certain that the machine plague first got loose in Northern California. San Jose, Cal Berkeley, someone's garage, and there hadn't been time for much warning. Otherwise, their desolate peak might have been very, very crowded. Last they'd heard, Colorado was dealing with 14 million refugees, food riots, and a rogue element of Air Force recruits carrying automatic weapons. Colorado should pull through. The Rocky Mountains offered hundreds of square miles at safe altitude, a few towns, ranches, ski villages, national park structures. Several areas still had power jury-rigged from hydroelectric plants, and just below the barrier were dozens of towns and even small cities for easy scavenging. Similar high country like the Alps and Andes would keep the human race alive. A future existed. Cam just hadn't believed he would be part of it. Unless their group had incredible luck hunting throughout the summer and fall, he and Sawyer had calculated that the only way they'd survive another winter would be to dismantle the other hut for fuel and kill and freeze most of the others immediately after the first snow. Bummer, huh? <laughs> Guys want a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. It gets happier from there. This is a little bit from chapter four. Ruth spent her time at the window, day after day, hours at a stretch. Commander Ulanov had ordered her to stop, had pleaded and even joked with her, his attitudes shifting as smoothly as the cloud masses wrapped around the blue earth below. 
but the International Space Station was a narrow, sterile world. Ruth needed more room to think. Besides, making each other crazy was about the only fun available to them. The lab module had a viewport only because its designers intended to conduct free space fluids and materials tests, and Ruth had long since retracted the twin Waldos bracketing the window to improve her view. No one was interested in pure science anymore. Prehistoric darkness blanketed the night side of the planet. Ruth watched patiently, dreaming. Sunrise still enthralled her, although from low Earth orbit it came every 90 minutes. Each new dawn reminded her of inspiration. Dr. Goldman, I'm sorry, I should have prefaced, I'm not going to try and fake the Russian accent, okay, just imagine. And Dr. Goldman, she flinched as Ulanov's voice boomed through the lab. Lately, he'd taken to surprising her. Not difficult when he could float noiselessly through the neck connecting this module to the main station the same way her stepdad had attempted to retrain his terrier after curls began eating the couch. Shock treatment. Lord knew her reaction was irrational, but Ruth found herself behaving exactly like that dumb dog, making a contest of it, and she no longer doubted that Ulanov was also playing this small game. The amount of time he spent tormenting her was too great. Their sparring had become the careful flirtation of commander and subordinate, skirting iron-hard rules against fraternization and the attraction must have been more difficult for him because of his reluctance to undermine his own authority. They were hard on each other, strong for each other, and it was wonderful to have any chance to feel amused. Ruth kept her face turned toward the viewport, baiting him. What can you be thinking, Ulanov demanded. What haven't you seen through that hole a million times before? The interior of the lab module would have been impassable in gravity. Her gear extended in bulky towers from three of the cube's six surfaces, bolted down between the original equipment and computers. It was a monochromatic jumble, off-white walls, gray metal panels. He expertly threaded his way toward her and touched his foot against the ceiling to correct his spin. Commander Nikola Ulanov was large for a cosmonaut, his ribcage wide enough to hold two of Ruth, and his square face had spread to epic proportions due to the redistribution of body fluids that occurred in zero-g. He apparently thought his size gave him a psychological edge and often crowded her, like now. His odor was how Ruth remembered Earth, a full and textured smell. Good, real, inviting. She finally glanced at him, wondering why he still bothered to act the gruff Soviet bear. He seemed to notice and tried a new tone. Truly, he was more of a wolf, nimble and cunning. He spoke quietly now. Tovarish, must I cover this hole? Will I assign someone to watch you? Why are you not understanding the importance? The warm spark of mischief in her heart faded. Maybe that was best. I've done all I can, she said. India transmitted new schematics only yesterday. I've done all I can here. He said nothing. He never did after she insisted she'd been beaten. It was a good trick, letting her stew in her shame and frustration. She used to blurt promises to work harder. Now they hung together in silence. At last, Ruth risked another look. Ulanov's wide brown eyes were aimed not at her but out the viewport, where a vast corona of yellow-white illuminated the dark curve of the planet. The snow's melted enough, she said. Colorado should be able to clear a stretch of highway for us. He was gruff. There will be no returning to orbit. Ruth nodded. Plague year, they were calling it now. Changing the calendar, changing history, and the decision felt right in so many ways. Everything was dead and new all at the same time. It had been a very different life 11 months ago when she rode the last shuttle launch out of Kennedy Space Center, the final launch. The supply rockets put up by the Europeans a week later didn't count. We are remaining as long as we can, Ulanov said. The president ordered us with good reason. And you want to stay a part of your war, she thought. Ulanov's motherland, like so much of the planet, must now be unimaginably empty. 
the remnants of the Russian people had fled to the Afghanistan mountains and to the Caucasus range, a sheer jag of rock thrust up between the Caspian and Black Seas, where they were entrenched in a confused, ferocious struggle against the native Chechens and refugee hordes out of Turkey, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Iraq. It might have been worse, except the Israelis had airlifted south to Africa and the high peaks of Ethiopia. Peace had at last come to Jerusalem, Jerusalem and the Middle East. The space station still received sporadic broadcasts from the Russian population, demands for orbital surveillance or American military support, or sometimes wild declarations of bloodthirst directed at their Muslim enemies. Ulanov transmitted high-res photos every day, weather and orbits permitting, and diligently relayed each request for supplies, and he had sworn his allegiance to the United States. As daylight lanced through the viewport, Ruth touched his shoulder, foolish. Reaction sent them both drifting slightly. She increased her grip to keep them together. The surface of his jumpsuit was as cold as his self-control, but his gaze flicked to her hand and then roamed her face. His expression softened. Ruth spoke first. Zero-G working conditions aren't an advantage if I don't have what I need. I'm past the limit of what I can achieve with reconstructions, badly translated reconstructions. Colorado's using an old electron probe and India lost a lot of software. The breakdowns they're sending are incomplete. Ulanov seemed to shake himself and then pulled free from her. Every time you report progress, he said. Ruth didn't know what to do with her hand. Sure, I'm still learning. Plagueier. It wasn't just human history that had crashed. The savage effects for the environment would be centuries or more finding balance again, if that was even possible. In many ways, Earth had become a different planet, and they were only beginning to see what would happen to the forests, the weather cycle, the atmosphere, the land itself. If you are still learning, Ulanov began, trying a new angle with her. But Ruth said, the design technique is extremely innovative. I could putz around with my models for another five years if you want. This is a joke. No, she tried to be gentle with the truth. Colorado's electron probe is barely strong enough to disassemble a nano of 2 billion AMU, much less reverse engineer it. And the glitches in India's programs make their schematics almost useless. My gear may be the best equipment left in the world. But yet you have stopped your work. Uli, I've done all I can here. Ruth had never felt this way toward the same person. Real warmth shot through with resentment. It made her nuts. The decision to stay in orbit was not his to make, but Ulanov had always been a loud-spoken proponent of keeping the ISS crew on station as long as possible when he could have added his voice to hers instead. She understood his position. She respected his commitment and his code of honor and honestly believed these traits were her own best strengths. It was the basis of their, of their attraction, and at the same time, it was probably what would keep them apart. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.